So we, uh, we're going through John. It's going to take 40 years, <laughs> but I'm okay with that. And today we get to spend time in just four verses. And we get to unpack what they say and what God says, more importantly than any advice I can give. And my hope is that today we would engage with what God said thousands of years ago that teaches us something about him and it teaches us something about us. Have any of you ever been asked by the court system to come and be a witness in a trial? Anybody? Anyone have to? Okay, a few of us. Yes, all right. It's kind of nerve-wracking. You get asked to come to the court. You probably have to dress a little bit nicer. You're not really sure when to stand up or sit down, kind of like church, right? And, and you, <laughs> you, you get asked to then testify, because that's what a witness does. They testify. And... When we are Christians, when God has redeemed us, when we've built a relationship, as a relationship has been built with God, we are called to be witnesses. We are called to testify. And I know it's a little nerve-wracking. And as a Christian, we want to testify to what we've experienced. Just like a witness in a courtroom, we don't share what we hope to be true or what we think might be true because of secondhand information. It's actually from the experiences that we've experienced that we give a true testimony. As a teacher of God's word, I want to make sure that I testify and explain and proclaim what the text actually says. But I want to testify to what I've read. I want to testify to what I've experienced. I want to testify about the changing nature of God as he allows us to read his word and put it into practice. Today we're going to hear the repercussions of what happens when we testify after meeting Jesus, after running into him. And you've heard me say this before. If you've been here, if you run into Jesus, you'll never be the same. When it's the real Jesus, you also don't get to keep it to yourself. So John chapter 4, starting in verse 39, here's what it says, four verses. And some of you are like, oh, this sermon might be shorter. No, no. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. This is the woman at the well. This is the woman that went to the well at 12 o'clock afternoon, sun's over her head, no one else is there, and then here comes Jesus, silly Jesus, even without a pail of water to grab the water from the well. And this woman has a reputation. This woman isn't liked by the other Samaritans. And, but in, Jesus engages her. And this woman and Jesus have a heavenly appointment. Have you ever had a heavenly appointment? Have you ever connected with someone? You're like, oh my gosh, that conversation was supposed to take place because it changed this, it challenged this, it made me start to think in a way that I hadn't before. I think God sent that person to have a discussion with me. Many of you know pizza's holier than Starbucks. And I spend my time at Pete's. And there's only two Pete's in Santa Clara, so I'll let you guess which one. And so I hang out at Pete's and I, I study with guys usually and I do a lot of my meetings there. And yesterday, I wasn't done with my sermon, I know, shame on me, and I was at Pete's, and I put my earbuds in, and I was sitting there, and I was not going to engage with anyone, but guess what happened every 10 minutes? I knew somebody that walked in. I'm a little too extroverted to just go, don't make eye contact, don't make eye contact. So I connected, and I was talking to people, but then after like four of these, I was like, nope, no more, and I like hid, and I was playing on my laptop, and then... I was in the chair, if you've been to this Pete's, I was in the chair that has a little table next to it, but there's not a table in front of you, so it's fair game to sit at the other chair 
and it's the comfortable chair because, you know, pastor's got to be comfortable. And, and I'm sitting there, and, and all of a sudden, someone sits in the other chair, and I can tell based on their body language they want to get my attention. They're like, and I'm like, oh, man, and just kept my eyes down, listening to music, and I was like, oh, and typing. <laughs> Eventually, I was like, oh, hey, and I'm still listening to the music, and they started to move their mouth, and I was like, ah, oh. and so I took it out. I took out my worship music because I ain't got time for people, and I took out my worship music, and we started having a conversation, and he was a guy named Andrew, and uh, and. He, he was like, hey, I've been in this Pete's many times, and I live really close, and I just see that you sit down, usually with younger men, and you just open the Bible with them, and, and I just see you encouraging these guys, and I'm like, oh, you're saying encourage, like, this is Christianese right here, and so I'm like, oh, and he's like, and I go to this church, I'm like, oh, great, you know, and so we're talking everything, he just, he just wanted to thank me for what I do, and then he started to testify about how God had changed him. And he started to testify about what had happened in his life. And I got to sit there, and I'm like, dude, look at my laptop. I'm actually writing about you, right? And so we're, we're, we're going back and forth. But one of the things that I appreciated most about his testimony was it wasn't so much about him as it was about what Jesus had done in him. So as we look at this woman at the well, there's this conversation that happens and she is challenged, she is changed, and she is catalyzed to go tell others about her experience. And she goes back into the heart of town in Samaria, and she starts to testify. She starts to share and explain the experience that she had just had, how Jesus was different. He knew things that others didn't know, and he had shared these things. And she started to tell the story about how he knew everything about her, because this was the most important conversation she had ever had. How would you like to sit with Jesus? Like physically, sit with Jesus. First, you'd be like, yeah, I want to know what he looks like because I don't think he looks like the Fabio version that we usually see. Young people, that was a guy on, never mind. <laughs> but how would you like to sit with Jesus and then have him share everything that he knows you've ever done? <laughs> I don't know about you. I, I, I don't need that itemized list. <laughs> But what if he started with the things that you've done right? And then all of a sudden he started to share the things that you've done wrong. Now, I'm thankful he doesn't do this. But as this woman and Jesus were having this conversation, Jesus pointed her back towards truth. He didn't just encourage her. He pointed her towards truth and where life could be found only in him. And as we often say in the, as we read scripture, we don't so much read the scripture as the scripture reads us. So when we read the scriptures, my hope is that it convicts our heart, that it exposes to you and I our desperate need for a savior and for a redeemer and for a Lord that has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And the belief that these Samaritans had, as the text says, that they heard from this woman and that they believed, usually, just so you know, as a Bible teacher, when there's, when there's a word and there's argument about the word and it could have two meanings, I tend to explain both meanings, unless I'm sure it's one and not the other. And the belief that these Samaritans had, that could have been one of two things. It could have been biblical belief, and I'll explain what that means. Or it could have been intellectual acknowledgement. See, biblical belief is a catalyst to faith and trust. When you have biblical belief, it leads to action. But saving faith or biblical belief are identified by the transformation and fruit in your life. But unbiblical belief, unsaving faith, or intellectual acknowledgement, that only leads to fandom. 
And it's not a belief that actually makes a lick of difference spiritually. See, what happens is when we just believe intellectually in something, kind of like a demon, we can just become a fan of Jesus rather than a follower. We can have the jersey, we can say we're all about him, but then we don't actually have a life that's been changed by him. And Jesus becomes more of a fad than a risen savior. Any of you ever had a fad? All right, let me, let me call out some. Furbies. Pogs. Anyone my generation? Yeah, pogs. Come on, Megan. And so, and, and what happens is Jesus becomes more of a fad than a risen Savior who is followed and obeyed. There's a text in Scripture that I remember I was teaching at Biola. Whoop, whoop. And I was teaching in chapel at Biola, and I remember teaching this passage, and this passage scared the H-E double hockey sticks out of me. Both, that's hell, literally and figuratively. Here's what it says. Jesus is ending the Sermon on the Mount, the most well-known, most podcasted sermon. wasn't podcasted, but, you know, in the most well-sold book ever. And he's finishing the Sermon on the Mount, and there's probably someone behind him playing piano or the harp or, I don't know, cowbell. And Jesus is finishing the sermon. As he's finishing the sermon, he says some words that are scary. Here's what he says. He says, Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What? But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out many demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then Jesus will say plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see why that was scary? And here's why it was scary to me specifically was I put far too much emphasis when it had to do with God's redemption based on what I do rather than what God has already done. Anybody? That's why Jesus, as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount, points us towards some belief, which is really not biblical belief. It's really just doing rather than being. I don't want anyone, any of us, to ever use language like this when asked the question, how do you know you're a Christian, or, you know, asked about your faith and things like that. I don't want any of us to justify ourselves and point out just all the things that we do. Because that's in conflict with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a faith that is not earned by works, but our faith does work. Do you hear what I'm saying? We have a faith that is not earned by works, but it does work. It actually propels us to do something. And the fruit of our Christian life is not the effectiveness in which we procure, but the spiritual growth in which we endure. So for a lot of us, and me included, when I was teaching at Biola, I still kind of had this belief that I was, I was definitely saved because I had led so many people to Christ. I was definitely saved because I had baptized so many people. I had spoken in front of thousands of people, so obviously that's the fruit of my life. And he said, no, it's not. And that's kind of a hard thing to learn while you're teaching in front of a thousand people. So these Samaritans, they had heard the testimony of this woman at the well. They had seen a change in this woman. She was probably pretty excited, right? But I highly doubt that this woman was that good at sharing the message of the gospel. She probably didn't know the four spiritual laws. She probably didn't know Romans Road. She probably didn't have a canned message that she had dialed in that she could share while she was in an elevator. You know what I'm saying? 
But you know what she had? She had passion. And passion trumps eloquence every single time. Because when you're passionate about something, when you prove that you believe in something based on how excited you are about it, all of a sudden people lean in. But then when you're basically Ben Stein and Ferris Bueller's day off, Bueller, and you start to share things in a way that really has no excitement, people tend to not engage as much. They're not listening because they almost are questioning, do you believe what you're saying? So when we testify, when we share our testimonies, as a witness would do on a, on a stand in a courtroom, it's not a glorified tale of our past. But what it is, is a proclamation of God doing something to us and through us. That's what a testimony is. It is a proclamation about what God is doing to us and through us. And if you're passionate, honestly, people will tend to engage. But if you're faking your passion, people will know. But if you testify that God changed you and there's no zeal, there's no excitement for the fact that he's changed you, it might just be because you weren't changed. You may have wishful thinking, but wishful thinking is not biblical belief. It's not faith. Biblical belief leads us to action. And biblical or belief without repentance, the idea of turning around, is, super, is spiritual superstition. So as people that have said, yes, I believe in Christ, it actually causes us to do something. It causes us to actually do what he says. And for a lot of people, belief without repentance is the absolute minimum required to feel religious, but not actually be redeemed. And these Samaritans believed because someone who they were aware of had had a conversation with, with who they thought was the Messiah. They had had an altercation, and there seemed to be some transformation because Jesus had shared some things with her that no one else knew. But this broken woman had a scarlet letter on her. She was ashamed to speak up to these very people days earlier, but now she's proclaiming that Jesus has changed her. But you also have to look at this from another perspective because the way people hear things, and we're going to talk more about that in a few moments, but the way people hear things is really important. And she wasn't very respected in this town. And here she comes trying to convince people of this new reality, this new good news, this new teaching. And she probably, like many of us, maybe if we first started to follow Jesus at whatever age, we started to tell other people about it. You know what she probably got that we probably got? She probably got discounted. People probably patted her on the head spiritually and just went, oh, that's cute, but we'll see. And honestly, that's, that's a true statement. I don't, mean to be, I don't mean to be rude, but I think you do this as well. When you see someone that believes in a certain faith or starts something new, you're starting to see if it's going to stick, right? Isn't that something that you can talk back? It's okay. We're in church. And that's something that I think we don't realize is when someone first comes to faith, people don't necessarily believe us. But a life transformed over time, that evangelism is compelling. That evidence has proof. But guess what? You can't microwave your sanctification. It doesn't happen real quick. You can't fast forward it and hope that you're just at the point where people will believe you and understand you. When people first become Christians, 
they always struggle with why people in their life don't necessarily believe what they believe, why they don't understand the things that they understand. But you know why? Because people have seen you have fads before. So they really want to know if this thing that you claim that you believe is going to stick. They really want to, you know, Billy Graham, pastor, preached in front of millions of people, has so much fruit in the sense of people that have committed to Jesus. Billy Graham's family didn't really believe him for decades. You know why? Because they had seen Billy get excited about other things before. And so the human condition is to kind of go, well, we'll see. But when we meet Jesus, it's an opportunity to repent, which means to change direction or to run. And if you run, you obviously miss out on finding shalom or peace or restoration, and you will attempt, let's just be honest, you will attempt to find it in anything and everything else, won't you? You'll try to find things that will numb the pain. You will try to find things that will fill this God-sized hole in your heart, and it will never fill you. For a lot of people, they just want to spend time around God. They don't want to spend time with him. They're like the Israelites, we don't want to go up the mountain. Moses, you go. We'll be down here in a comfortable context because God's scary. And people would rather hang around him rather than be with him. Or they'd like to hang out with people who hang out with God rather than actually be with God. <sighs> but they don't want to hang with them themselves. Because they're afraid that if they spend time with God, that God will condemn them, that, they will, that God will point out what they're missing, the fact that they don't measure up. But let me, let me just love you enough in this moment. Here, you don't measure up. Y'all hear me? You just don't. But we have a God who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And this is what I mean when I say that Jesus measured up for us. And so we trust in him. You don't measure up, but he does. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died. He rose from the dead so that you and I could know that salvation and heaven and eternal life is possible and attainable, but it's not by what you do, it's by what Christ has accomplished. All right, that was one verse. Verse 40, let's go. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. So the Samaritans had seen Jesus, and they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Okay, I want you to think about this for a second. Jesus, the savior of the world, he walks the earth for 33 years after he was born of Mary. But he's always existed, but he's really only got three years of public ministry. And he spends two days with the Samaritans. Two days. They asked him, hey, would you spend time with us? And he spent two days with them. Huh. With these Samaritans, the Jews considered half-breeds. That's a pretty large percentage of the time that he was doing ministry to spend it with some people that most people would discount. Uh, I actually want you to raise your hand if you've ever wondered this. You ever wonder why Jesus didn't come and live his earthly ministry now? Anybody? Yeah, okay, cool. Think about it. If Jesus were to perform, if he was walking around and probably be, you know, New York or L.A. or somewhere, if he was walking around and he 
performed a miracle? What would happen? That would be on YouTube and Snapchat faster than you could even imagine what happened, right? And it would go viral. People would see it. Everywhere he went, he could proclaim that he was the deity, that, and people would have no problem recording it and posting it. So in a logical sense, wouldn't it make more sense for him to come now where we can know what someone had for breakfast in Bangladesh this morning? Then when he came in this very humble beginnings in these very meager places, that, this very meager place that was not very provocative. And yet a man who left no written words. You guys know that, right? Like nothing in here did Jesus physically write. A man who left no written words. He said things, people wrote it down, but he left no written words. There is no human person there is no man, there is nobody that has ever been talked about as much as Jesus. There is no one that has been talked about, argued about, exalted as much, or tried to be explained away as much as Jesus, who only had a three-year public ministry. No matter who you are, you got to do something with Jesus. And yet this man who left no written word is known by more people on earth and in history than anyone ever. And the same important entity that I believe is deity spent two days with these Samaritans that were considered half-breeds to the Jewish people. They were unliked. You need to know that God has time for you. Do you hear me? God has time for you, but you choose not to spend time with him. You create calendars and schedules around your effectiveness and your efficiency rather than acknowledgement of God's existence. When was the last time you didn't just put him as a part of your day, a footnote in your day, but you made your day about him? I don't, I, confession time, I don't like being alone. I'm pretty extroverted. And usually after second service, and I'm telling you way too much, now we're recording this, and I shouldn't be saying this, but I, I, I am. <laughs> after second service, I'm done. Poured out what I could pour out. I, I just like lay in my room. My wife goes, go in your room, go away. And I just do nothing. Actually, I play stupid video games on my phone, if I'm honest. And I just do nothing because I need time to recharge. But you know what's happened in a lot of period of time was I remember just being distracted by my God all day. I remember wanting to spend time with God all the time. But you know what I did? I started to replace that time with God with time with people. Now, it's not wrong to be around other people, but what happens is I spend so much time not plugged into the source, not abiding in Christ. I spend so much time trying to help other people. And let's just be real about this. I mean, I'm going to be real, so hopefully you'll follow the example. Sometimes I do that because I actually think that you all need me. Do you know how backwards that is? Do you know how ridiculous that is? Do you know how much I act like Satan when I act like that? Because Satan got kicked out of heaven for wanting glory for himself, and when I make much of Jesus, others make much of me. And so what I've learned over time is, guess what? I'm just not that important. Neither are you. But our relationship with God should always be the top of our priority list. And it's not wrong to meet with people, but it is wrong to replace your connection with God by meeting with other people. So as your pastor, I don't want to have a savior complex where I think I'm so special that if I don't intervene, you're not going to be okay. 
verse 41. And because of his words, many more became believers. Because of whose words? Jesus. So Jesus spends two days with these Samaritans after they had heard a testimony about, from the woman at the well, and these people had a spiritual reaction to what? Was it to his being? Was it to his example? Yes, both of those are true. But it was also to his words. So let me give you a quote that I've heard that is so unbiblically true. Are you ready? I love unbiblically true things. I like to make fun of them. Here we go. Preach the gospel every day. And if you have to, use words. Some of you were like, oh, I should probably go into my Instagram and remove that meme. Because that sounds good, doesn't it? Preach the gospel every day, and if you have to, use words. The idea is that your example is so compelling, it is so good, that people don't even need you to speak up. Listen, you need to speak up. In fact, Romans chapter 10, verse 14, Paul says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone proclaiming or preaching to them? Let me, let me make it clear. Even Jesus had to speak up. Even Jesus had to open his mouth. All right, so this is biblical, but I'm just going to talk to all of you that have a relationship with another human being. Are you ready? Here it is. Communication is the precursor and the preserver of relationship. We just did our first week of premarital counseling. All right? Communication is the precursor and the preserver of relationship. Without communication, relationships either don't really begin and they definitely won't continue. That's true in your romantic relationships. That's true in your friendships. That's true in your discipleship. That's true in any kind of ship you can think of. So don't tell me that you know Jesus if you don't communicate with him. I have this dream of us, COV, Church of the Valley, and Santa Clara being a church that thinks biblically, but thinking biblically is just a symptom of a real and true intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And no matter what your shirts say, hear me, Jesus is not your homeboy. Got it? He's not. He's not just a mentor that we get to pick and choose when we take his advice, but he is a God who is in control of our lives in a way that manifests itself daily by us dying to ourselves and trusting his words and commands. I've said it before, but we do, in the church of Jesus Christ and in, in America and in the world, we do not have a belief problem. We have a repentance problem. So many of us want to believe like a demon, but we don't actually want to have the action that follows biblical belief, which is repentance. We're not saved by what we do, but when we are saved, there are things that we do. Picking up what I'm putting down? Truth is, we have a bunch of deceived, miscalculating fakers. Faker. In and around the church who claim Christ, but live for themselves. And I love you enough to challenge you with this. The fruit of the Spirit, we talk about it a lot. It is the byproduct of our salvation. It is the evidence of our salvation. It is the evidence of our sanctification. Those who are doing what Christ says out of a, mo a motive of love for God, they grow. And here's the fruit of the Spirit. It's Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23a. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, and he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and we know the song, love, joy, peace, forbearance, that's patience, 
Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit, church. And so when we say that we want to look more like Jesus, take a picture of that. That's what we want to look like. But just like a tree can't make itself grow, you can't make yourself grow. Grow. It doesn't work that way. You actually have to put into practice what God says, and you progressively start to look more and more like Jesus. Oh, man. I don't know how you guys are going to hear this. And so, like, I taught it in first, and I hope they heard it, and I think some did, and I think some, it totally, they missed it. But we talk a lot about how, how people hear things, and there are pragmatic and realistic actions that Christians do. There are things that Christians do. Not to be saved, but it's evidence that they are saved, okay? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow us down a little bit because I don't want, and I know some of us will, will hear what I'm about to share, and without meaning to, you'll start to justify yourself based on these actions. So here's the disclaimer. What I'm about to describe does not make you a Christian. What I'm about to describe does not make you saved. It does not. So here's what we're going to do. I need you to talk back to me. You ready? What I'm about to share, this does not save us. That's what I need you to say, all right? One, two, three. All right, you said it. But if someone claims Christ, and these are things that people are unwilling to do and they don't do, it's a good indication that maybe we got to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. Ice cube. And we're not actually talking about incredibly deep things. We're talking about very practical and simple things that demonstrate where our belief lies. Because we all know this, I think. Our belief dictates how we behave. If you believe something, it's going to make you behave a certain way. So I'm going to give you these practical evidence. I'm going to give you these practical steps. If you take notes, write these down. These are good. But you just said these do not save us. And that is absolutely true. Here we go. Christians read the Bible and do what it says. Told you, pretty practical. Christians read the Bible and do what it says. It doesn't require the Holy Spirit to read it. It requires the Holy Spirit to do what it says and to understand it. Christians live out the word of God. We not only quote it, we don't just quote it like Satan could, but we use it as the lens and the filter of how we think and how we act. That's what it means to think biblically. First one, let's keep getting practical. Two, doesn't save us, but these are things Christians tend to do. Christians are accountable to a church community. What? Wait, I, going to church doesn't save me? You're right, that's why you said this does not save us. You're absolutely right, but this is what Christians do. And you know what I didn't say? That you go to a church. I said Christians are accountable to a church community, which most of us would assume that it means this. It means attending a service regularly so you can see others in their walk, but check it. Here's the important part, so others can see you and your walk. That's what accountability looks like. So much of the membership in churches across our country is just lip service to places that we claim we belong rather than what reality really is. People say often, I'm a Christian, and the first question that most people ask if someone says they're a Christian is, what church do you go to? Right? I mean, that's literally the question most of us would ask. 
Now, we mean the worship service. We mean the gathering of God's people, usually in a building. But the reality is, where are you accountable? You don't get to be a James Bond 007 Christian without a family of believers who God uses to help refine you. That's why it's so important that you engage and you're accountable in a place. This isn't for attendance. Go somewhere else. I don't care. I mean, I do, but I... If you're not growing here, go somewhere else, seriously. But if you are growing here, man, engage, because God wants to use you and grow you. So a couple practical ones here. Now it's going to feel a little harder because these are the scary ones. You ready? Christians share their faith. This doesn't mean you stand on a street corner with a sign and hear me, I will tackle you if I see you doesn't mean you argue about your faith, but it means that you're prepared with an answer. It means that you're looking for the opportunity to talk about something that's more important than the Niners. I'm a Steelers fan, so I don't care. That you don't treat Christianity, your faith, as a secret club that now that you're in, you don't want anyone else to be a part of. I'm doing the cabbage but you want others to see and know the God, hear me, you want others to see and know the God who forgave you of your sins. Why wouldn't you want others to experience this God? All right, practical, that one got a little scary. Here's another one, doesn't sound scary at first, but it might be, Christians pray to God. You know what I didn't say? Christians pray. Because I hear people praying to higher powers and Oprah all the time. We pray to God. You have an ongoing conversation with God, which isn't a monologue, but it is a dialogue through your petitions and his word. John Piper was right. I don't always say that, but John Piper was right. You want to hear God's voice audibly? Read the Bible out loud. Use the Bible app. It's a British accent. It's beautiful. (laughs) But I know this. I know a lot of us are afraid to pray out loud, aren't we? I know I was when I first started, when I became a Christian, it was kind of like, I was, I don't know who I was talking to. I was like, Jesus. And I said, Lord God, 37 times in two sentences. And it was just, ah. But a lot of us fear man a lot more than we love God. So we choose to attempt to keep even our prayers hidden from others because we're afraid that we won't sound spiritual. You know what sounds less spiritual than praying in an awkward way? not praying out loud. That's awkward. That's not spiritual. Here's the one that many treat as a requirement for only marine, hoorah, top-tier, super holy Christians, all right? Christians can articulate the gospel. This is going to create debate. This is going to create self-justification all over the place. But listen to me. Articulating the gospel is something that a person who has been redeemed by the gospel can do. I'm not talking about talking like a third-year seminary student who uses big words to impress his professor, Mike. But when the gospel is received, it changes our view of this world. It creates redemption as the theme of our lives and how we hear things. So when I'm talking to you, and so I have probably with many of you in this room, I've asked this question, what's the gospel? And you go, ah, right? Here's what I'm looking for. 
Not looking for justify, justification, sanctification. I'm not looking for these words. Here's what I'm looking for. It's pretty simple. That the explanation of the gospel does not have any hint of human effort. And Jesus is the hero. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for words that has no hint of human effort. And Jesus is the hero. So I'm going to offend you. Starting now. If the gospel explanation has even a hint of human effort, as if we are doing a God a favor by becoming a Christian, we do not understand the gospel because you did nothing. Grace is not earned and it is not lost. It is only received by faith and our faith works. And if Jesus isn't the hero, we're explaining a false gospel. I hear all the time about how we accepted Christ. Here we go. You ready? You didn't accept Christ. He accepted you. I don't know how more blatant I can say that, but I hear it all the time. Oh, that's when I accepted Christ. That's when I gave my life. No, no, no. You didn't. You didn't accept Christ. He accepted you. You may have submitted to him, but he did all the work to redeem you, and you did nothing. So in explaining the gospel, the person God used in your life to share the gospel with you, they're important, but they're not the hero. Do you hear me? The person who baptized you, not the hero. God used them because Jesus is the hero, and that's the good news. So do you share the gospel to be saved? Absolutely not. But if you cannot articulate it, it's probably because you don't understand it probably because you haven't received it. You might have received a do-good action-based religion that's in conflict, conflict with relationship with Jesus Christ, but it's not the gospel. All right, two more. We're almost done, kind of. Christians, this one's crazy, Christians are sacrificial. You picking up what I'm putting down? Christians are sacrificial. They give up time, treasure, and talent for the kingdom of God. Now, none of this saves you, but this is what Christians look like. Not perfectly. Please hear me. If you're sitting here going, oh, I don't do that. I'm not. This is a progression, guys. But Christians give up time, treasure, and talent for the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God takes priority over your agenda once you've been made a new creation in Christ Jesus. And like all of these, these are progressive. Have you honestly seen yourself become more selfless and more kingdom-focused as you've followed Jesus? Last one, but I'm sure you would have tons more, and I'm sure a bunch of you are going to want to tell me after the service, and la, 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 I'm not listening. Okay, send me an email. I'll pay attention to it next week. Christians strive to imitate Jesus. If someone goes, you're a Christian, that's kind of a bad thing. If they're surprised by the fact that you're a church-going follower of Jesus, that's a bad thing. We strive to imitate Jesus. We live out the WWJD bracelet. Anybody? You think in terms of Jesus' example and in obedience to his words. So why do I share this? Because sometimes I feel like we just got to get real practical, church. Because you can do one or two of these things in your own strength. You don't need the Holy Spirit. But to do all of these things put together, that requires God intervening. It really does require the Holy Spirit. And what we believe dictates how we behave. And these are not things that save us, but these are things that Christians do. And man, we can try to self-justify. Oh, I don't need to do that. I don't know. What's the verse for? This is what Christians do. 
there's an outward evidence of a behavior that's been transformed and conformed by biblical belief in Jesus. All right, verse 42. We're almost done. John 4, 42. They said to the woman, Samaritans, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. These people went to the source. They heard it from the horse's mouth. They heard that Jesus, they heard from Jesus who he says that he is. And through this, God removed the veil. He made it so they could understand who Jesus really is, that there is hope in Christ alone. They got to see how beautiful, how compelling, how perfect our God is. But don't take my word for it, church. Engage with him yourself. Spend time in the word yourself. Pray to him yourself. Read his words. Do what he says. Test me on this. I guarantee you, you'll change because if you're willing to submit yourself to Christ, he won't let you stay where you are. He'll take you how you are, but he won't let you stay where you are. My hope is that we would know that he is the savior of the world. And because of that, because of that belief, it would dictate how we behave, not to be a do-gooder people, Please, I, I've been teaching on how it's not about what we've done. It's not about what we've done. But then there's this weird thing. Well, what do you do? It matters. Not to be saved, but because of what Christ has already accomplished. So my hope is that the veil would be removed if you're still struggling with this. But if you are, come talk to us. Come ask questions. Anyone on the stage, come talk to me. We'd love to talk with you to help you understand what the gospel is. In a few moments, we're going to have the opportunity to witness two young men outwardly proclaim what they believe inwardly, to be baptized in front of you. And hear me, this baptism doesn't save them. This is just a proclamation. This is to testify of what Christ has already done in their life. And they've had godly people invest in them. They've had great guys pour into them. But you know what? Those people aren't the hero. Jesus says. Worship team, would you come on up? We get to respond in worship. And that isn't just in singing. That's also in the opportunity to receive an offering, and we pass the bags, second service, so you don't even have to get up. But I also want you to know this is not a tip to God for guilt. If you didn't come prepared to give, if you don't feel between you and God you're supposed to give, don't give. But if you came prepared, if this is the church that you call your home, you believe you're spiritually growing in this place, you ought to give because it's an act of worship. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing. And as soon as the bag passes you, feel free to stand up as we worship in song, and then we will close, and we will have these baptisms that will really be our closing. But don't miss this opportunity to respond in worship and to respond to the grace that was given to us through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that your word is a lamp unto our feet. Sometimes it smacks us upside the head and sometimes it consoles us when we're hurting. And God, where we're hurting, we ask that, Lord, as we read your word, we'd be reminded of how much you love us and all that you've done for us. And God, that we would trust you with our lives. But Lord, if we need to be smacked upside the head, if there's a conviction, God, may we not numb that conviction, but may we do what you're asking us to do. And Lord, would the evidence of that be spiritual growth? 
Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship and offering, and we ask that you would take the tithes and offerings of your people and you would use it to make much of yourself across the world till the end of time. God, would we see more disciples be made of Jesus and not of us? May we be a part of what you're doing through giving. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.